Between the Chapters, a weekly podcast discussion focusing on a chapter of the book, 25 Years of EdTech, written by Martin Weller. Here's your host, Laura Pasquini. Well, welcome. We're at Chapter 7, the year 2000. Learning Objects. I'm here with Brian Lamb, Darcy Norman, and John Robertson. Thank you, lads, for joining the chat today to talk about this chapter. Well, what are y'all thinking about learning objects? My thinking has evolved on learning objects. <laughs> I mean, back in the day, we were kind of the advocates for it, right? We were building the platforms. We were, we were giving conference presentations, learning objects for the future. And yeah, I think through, uh, through our experience, it's like, yeah, maybe it's not about content and metadata and copyright. Maybe there's something else going on here. So yeah, I think my thinking has evolved over the last couple of decades. Fair enough. Darcy, evolution's bound to happen. Brian, you had a really cool title back in the day. My first actual job, so I had taught I had taught with some online teaching in Mexico, but my first Canadian jobs were learning objects. So I for two years I was supposed to find learning objects at Tech BC. And then at UBC, I actually had the job learning object project coordinator. Uh, and that was kind of my first serious job, so to speak, in uh, in Canada. So so in many ways very fortunate because Nobody knew what it was, and it really was there wasn't a whole lot there. So in many ways, it was an opportunity to really kind of define the job as you went. All right, let's do the favor for an audience because I don't know who's tuning in for whatever purpose. There may not be people in ed tech listening. So, what the heck is a learning object? Who wants to take that one, John? <laughs> Great. Um, okay, so I'm I'm going to hold up a prop, um, which I'll always have to explain. But if I was trying to capture the idea of a learning object, uh, 1995, Neil Stevenson, The Diamond Age, um, has this basic premise in it of this thing called the Young Ladies Illustrated Primer, and it is this this piece of technology that, uh, uh, in the story, a young waif picks up and she, it teaches her. Uh, everything about the world, um, both in terms of science and technology, but also how to be a better person. If I was trying to capture learning objects, something of the idea and the enthusiasm was the idea that you could create this thing, like a piece of shareable code in, 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 in programming, that could help people learn. And you could have eight intelligent agents that would stitch it all together, and you could someone could self-tutor themselves, um, and it, it, the world would be wonderful. Um, and there'll be opportunities, educational opportunities for everybody. And um, you just had to build the pieces, um, like the Lego blocks, as, as mentioned um, in, in the chapter. And that that'll be it. Um, you describe it properly and you know, build it. And then everybody has it. And no, you don't have to build it again. How do we break that down for non-technical <clears throat> folks? Because literally this chapter says it's mm -hmm. built and borrowed from software, object-oriented programming. Uh, how did you bring that to the lay person at your campus, Brian? Well, as Martin talks about in the chapter, some, the most common definitions were so vague, and I think Wiley had a line that it literally describes any entity or concept in the known universe. Like it was like anything digital or non-digital that can support learning. Um, because you had to make it that wide eventually, because if you did anything narrower, somebody could, well, what about a, what about a, and you go, oh yeah, okay, that could be a learning object too. And so that that found that was really harsh there back then I, I don't know if darcy and john remember it differently but there was kind of a tension between this the quote unquote kind of 
serious learning technology people who were about the standards and the structure and saying, we got to build this thing, you know, almost on like an engineered specified kind of rigor. Uh, and we got to have, you know, learning objectives built into it. And we got to define our uh, average semantic density, which was a, 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 low, a an actual learning object metadata field that you had to define. And then you had people, and I kind of gravitated to these that were kind of more like, no, we just want to share stuff and we want to be able to work together and we want to learn and like, let's get on with it. And, you know, and, uh, you know, I remember Scott Leslie wrote a blog post called sharing or planning to share versus just sharing. And I think it was because he had been through what three years of meetings where people were like writing documents and stuff to promote sharing, but there wasn't any actual sharing happening in part because no one could understand the specifications. And at the same time, we were starting to blog and it was like, I was just taking Darcy stuff and I was just, <laughs> you know, I was just taking Josie Fraser's stuff. You know, she like, you know, I could, there's this person in the UK, she does cool stuff. I can take her stuff <laughs> and she's cool with it. And we didn't need a spec. A spec. So that kind of became this uh, kind of divergence there, I think. It was kind of like a friendly skirmish between like the archivists where we must have metadata and it must be managed. And so if somebody's looking for something, they get what we think they're looking for and friendly skirmish with the teachers who always have the drawer full of stuff that they share and they don't care what it's described or what's the label on the file folder. And so there's this culture shock where they hit together. And a lot of the early repository work that, that I was involved with was, was very much about, well, let's make sure, as, as Brian said, the semantic density, I still don't know what that is, but making sure we're describing, you know, how complex is this thing? Which educational context can, can it be used in? Um, and, and so things like we had uh, a university in Southern Alberta was one of the bigger users of our repository for a while. And they were publishing things like photos of Richardson ground squirrels and red tail hawks. And is that a learning object? Well, it kind of is, but they'd also add the species name. So you could actually, if you're looking for, you know, whatever species and genus, it'll, it'll find the thing. They would geotag it back in the early 2000s. They would put GPS coordinates in. So you could actually find things near an area, what kind of species coexist. And then those could be used in the context of teaching. Absolutely learning objects. Um, but yeah, it was like, well, how do you actually describe this stuff? Is there a field that can that can have it in there? And who gets access to it? Who can edit it? Who can make something new with this photo of a of a ground squirrel? Can you put that in a presentation and share the presentation? And there was a lot of effort spent about that. Who, who owns the copyright for the photo? And who owns the copyright of the derivative works? And that kind of sucked a lot of the energy into those conversations as opposed to Hey, I'm doing this cool thing with these photographs, and look, look, they're on a map, and we're we're doing field trips with it. Basically, uh, the, the the pedagogical aspect to it kind of got ignored sometimes. Uh, ignored, or people tried to define it and limit it. You know that 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 great thing of uh, well, how is this going to be used? And every possible use under the sun had to be accounted for. Um, I do think though that 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 conversation about that impulse to share and building um, structures to share, whether or not they worked, um, they'd kind of set the groundwork for a lot of um, things that are going to come up in, in, in later chapters with open content or just mentioned here too. Yeah. And one of those, you know, kind of hard conversations was interoperability. And that was a thing that like, I think we take it for granted now that most things that render in a browser render on people's browsers. I mean, and, and I think we've gotten used to the idea that we can 
send someone a link to somebody else's stuff, or we can all be on different kinds of machines and still have a conversation like this one. That wasn't something you could take for granted back then. And even within your own institution, somebody could spend a lot of time building a piece of media and nobody would be able to run it, even within their own groups. Uh, and so this kind of discussion about, you know, getting on the same page with what we were doing. It was a hard one because that naturally, you know, bounds things and it, and it, and it, and it will, and then who decides, you know, what's the way to approach it. And, 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 and ultimately some people aren't going to like those decisions. So that there was a lot of, that's where a lot of those kind of tiresome arguments came out of were very sincere and passionate beliefs, you know, about what learning media could be or should be. And also this was the early two, two, the early aughts, and we were solving in some senses a different problem that doesn't really exist now. You couldn't drag a file into a browser and have it exist on the internet. You whoa, whoa, slow down. For the kids who didn't hear that, you could not drag and drop your <laughs> files to go into the place on the web. Darcy, tell us more about, tell us about those times. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it, was, it was a different era. So you had to know FTP, and you had to know permissions on Unix servers to make sure everyone could read the folder that you just uploaded. And, you know, is, what's the URL for that? all this kind of crazy stuff? Now you literally just drag something in your browser and you're done. So a lot of the repository work was solving the problem of how does a teacher or a student upload that photo of a, of a, of a hawk? Well, okay, do we teach them how to use uh, Anarchy and the, the FTP programs? Or here's an upload button upload it to the repository platform, this application, now it's online, it's got a URL, and this other stuff happens behind the scenes. So in a sense, it was solving a problem that doesn't really exist anymore. Although anticipating problems that we still haven't done very well, because the idea too was they were trying to build systems that we would theoretically still be able to use now. Uh, the idea was long-term preservation too. And I don't think we're very good at that even now. I mean, the number of things that <laughs> die from two years ago. Um, is, is still a significant issue. And I, I think one other piece of it was that I know that the cost of producing, you know, uh, quote unquote, fancy learning objects or whatever that looks like, you know, complex simulations or that kind of thing. I know the cost of that has gone down and, you know, now my daughter can, you know, do stuff that people uh, spent months developing and she can do stuff in an evening. But at the same time, it's like there was, there was the idea of like, okay, we can build this once. And it's really expensive, but then we can share it and everybody can use it. So everybody can have this wonderful interactive. And it's really interesting, both in terms of how that kind of got the problem right and wrong in terms of what teaching looks like. But the, one of the other things with that that's really interesting is um, the way that those projects succeeded. Um, so there are still projects, uh, still an uh, initiative in the, UK, in the UK that is sh uh, sharing simulations around hairdressing. It was an incredibly successful project um, for community colleges um, around hairdressing and, and kind of creating these, uh, well, at the time, probably flash objects uh, to help people learn how to be hairdressers. And that interesting kind of, that, that, that it was one of the problems we were trying to solve is permanence. So you put something online and we know it'll exist 10, 20, 30, 50 years from now because we want these things to exist. What happened is we had, in the case of our repository, we had like 30,000 pieces of content objects. When the server got turned off, all those just went poof. So yeah, we, they were permanent until the server got turned off, but there was a single point of failure there. What was really fascinating, so we had this national repository project in Canada called Edu Edusource, and there was tons of meetings talking about specifications and interoperability. If we have all these things, repositories that can talk, talk to each other, you can find things all over the place. And I remember Stephen Downs at one of the meetings was like, guys, uh, we might be overthinking this. There's a thing called Google, and it actually can access all kinds of things. You can type in something and it'll just find it. 
And we're like, that's, that's crazy talk. We need to have specifications. We need to have APIs and all of this. We'll, we'll, we're, not gonna, we're not gonna deal with that. The funny thing is Google and people just publishing stuff online is what's working now, even though the vast majority of repositories are, are essentially gone. So all of you have said things that exist in my world of library science. I'm a secret librarian. I know enough to do well with digital preservation, archive, archival uh, repositories, metadata. Where were the librarians in any of this conversation back in the early 2000s? Because I think you all possess these secret skills as well to do this because you're thinking about interoperability, you're thinking about preservation, you're thinking about long-term sustainability, and that's really what some of my colleagues back in the iSchool do. So were they in these conversations? Because I didn't see them in this chapter. So uh, I, I also at this point need to out myself as a librarian uh, yes. of, of, of some kind. Um, <laughs> I think... Uh, the, the, uh, t two comments. The, the, the nicest way to put it is that there were sometimes librarians involved and they tried to solve the wrong problem. Okay. Um, the, the, the other way to put it, put it from the time um, for many educational and learning technology projects was that the quickest way to kill an, an e-learning project was to have librarians involved um, because the perspective of how something had to work and had to work quickly and had to be just usable met the perspective um, from a library uh, standpoint of, okay, we're planning, we're building some a system that is going to work for, you know, the next 500 years. Um, you know, it's it's going to be usable. And also apart from that has to fit in with everything we've done for the past 500 years. Um, I'm exaggerating a little bit, obviously. So I think there was a parallel skill set, but the institutional culture um, didn't translate. It kind of was an early example of some of the cultural distinctions we still see now. Like librarians were definitely very prominent, actually, in that in those initiatives in Canada. That EduSource initiative, one of the uh, strands of that was a thing called CanCore, which was it's we we had our own metadata standard, which it wasn't was actually just a derivation of the Dublin core, but it was an attempt to simplify it and uh, make it a little more practical in the Canadian context. So a lot of the, the meetings were actually led by librarians and archivists, and um, they actually probably did the most, they could actually get things out, you know, like they actually did publish things, which is more than you can say for a lot of the other stuff. And then you had the IT people and they were, you know, driving a certain set of things. And then, Back then, you know, learning technologists, this was kind of before you could go get a degree in learning technology. There, it didn't exist. Most of us were refugees from other disciplines or other jobs. And we were a mix of developers and teachers and whatever. And then mainstream faculty, my memory of it, and maybe John and Darcy remember it differently, were pretty much not part of that conversation. And in fact, where I started to realize things were a problem was I would go to like a meeting and we, like EduSource, I think actually even gave us like workshop materials we could use in our in our institutions. And then I would try to deliver these workshops to, you know, just normal teaching faculty and convince them why every piece of work they did, they had to spend three times longer than they spent to create the media to index this this article and, and to submit it to this repository. Uh, you sold it was a tough me. sell. <laughs> Like the, and just I think the body language and the looks on people's faces, you know, really was what 
told me more than anything than any kind of analysis that is like, Ooh, this is, I don't know if this is going to work the way we're, we're planning it to. A bit of a deer in the headlights when you express ideas. Yeah. More and honestly kind of contempt. Like, what are you doing? What are you telling us to do? This makes no sense to us. What's and what's the payoff. And because too, there was that, that sense, you know, we didn't have critical mass of objects. I mean, Darcy said you was it 30,000 objects in Cario. That was a lot, but you, you, when you think about how vast the educational needs need to be and how fast they evolve and how quickly they change, you like uh, my first two years working in Canada was at Tech BC, and my job was to find learning objects. And they kept saying, "Search Merlot and search this," and I go, "Yeah, I did. There's 30 things in Merlot. Like, there's there's nothing there. Like, I can get you stuff, but it's not going to be out of a repository, and it's not going to be MetaTag. Like, I can go to the WFMU website and get you this cool audio file of." Marcel Duchamp, but I'm not going to find that as a package learning object. And if you want it to be that, then it's not going to happen. Do you want media or not? And uh, so, yeah, it, it just kind of, the, 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 the concepts were interesting and there were a lot of interesting people coming to the table and the conversations were really interesting. And I think Martin's correct to say prefigured a lot of the stuff that became OER uh, and open ed. Uh, but man, at the time, practically trying to make this work for a typical educator as a value proposition was not fun. Well, and then there's the question of what do people do with this stuff? So all these things are published in various repositories. And, you know, frankly, a lot of it was just kind of digital hoarding. We have, now we have all these photos indexed and tagged that, you know, maybe somebody might find and use a handful of it. And so the people that actually were, was their job to publish stuff would publish stuff and they would probably find something else, but largely people, at least in, in our in our institution, didn't casually go in and look for stuff. It was something they probably would have been using anyway, just here's another place to put it. Uh, so we did some work on sort of the reusability thing. What do you actually do with these things? And so we'd had, we had a project where we were um, working with uh, uh, the New Media Consortium to build a, a platform based on learning object repositories to build presentations. So you could take all these images and videos and whatnot and assemble them into presentations. And that's where the Pachyderm project came from. And there was some reusability there, but I mean, really that was essentially a, a, a bespoke authoring tool where you were slotting content in that you could have done in any other platform. Yes, it was built on top of learning object repositories and metadata and all this stuff, but it didn't really take advantage of that. It was still essentially a bespoke authoring platform. Uh, which I think, yeah, that's kind of the pattern of all this, right? Let's over-engineer a thing based on the theory of how this stuff should work as opposed to how do people actually do things. Yeah, and I think that was said, um, Martin does get <laughs> talk about it before moving to the next e-learning standards chapter, which I, I will talk to with a few folks about that, is we didn't have any kind of roadmap of what that would look like or what why would people find value? And I really want to point out what I said earlier was the culture of the factions. Like, I have like the sense of Game of Thrones with learning objects. Like people had their own little areas that they held on to and maybe came together, but didn't really speak the same language even, or I don't know. It sounded like culturally they weren't there or ready for it yet. And then there was a question of who gets the money. And I think just by the nature of where funding comes from, especially back then, because as far as I can remember, this is the final time in Canada that the federal government funded a significant nationally learning initiative. Uh, this killed it, <laughs> killed federal funding. That's how successful it was. Uh, but obviously those kinds of structures favor kind of more formal, serious sounding approaches, you know, getting a bunch of people in a room and hacking on a piece of media, 
you know, an ordering pizza doesn't sell the same way as say a standard does. You know, I think there's a reason why CanCorp got funded because it, you know, just reads on the page as a serious adult thing to do to have a sustainable project. Or institutional interoperability. Yeah, let's fund that. But people making stuff? No, no. I'm sorry. What were you saying, Darcy? I just fell asleep there. Um. But that's where the money is. That's where the money was. I'm not sure which direction we want to take the conversation next, but uh, I do think it's interesting seeing what kind of, what, what survived, what emerged. And those kind of, those funded repositories, those funded things are often the things that, that went away because they needed ongoing long-term funding. But some of the, you know, getting people together for pizza um, and, and hacking, uh, hacking some objects, mm-hmm. that turned into other projects, other things. Um, well, I, I have a very specific example that Darcy played a direct role in, which was, so as part of this project, that's how I met Darcy. Darcy was in Calgary and I was at UBC. And we had an instance of his repository. And again, it was a tough sell. So I think our repository, like we bought a really good high-end server and we installed Cario on it. And Darcy was fantastic. Anytime I needed anything from him, I'd hit him up on Instant Messenger and he implemented instantly. And that's kind of how we became friends because he was just such a great, fun guy to work with. And, but I think I had 50 objects in this repository. I couldn't get people in my community to contribute their resources. And a lot of it too, wasn't just workload. Um, there was a lot of suspicion that this was some sort of power play to seize faculties, um, intellectual property. Um, you know, people wanted all sorts of assurances that this wouldn't be commercialized. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that Creative Commons was, you know, kind of came about to address. And this was pre-Creative Commons. So this stuff wasn't really in place. And also, I think people thought they were going to get rich. You know, they, they, they actually thought, you know, I'm going to be able to sell my sine wave Java applet, you know, for, you know, $100 to 10,000 different institutions. You know, I think people thought they would be able to do that. So anyway, so there was this kind of like dormant moribund repository sitting on this really skookum server uh, but Darcy and I shared this interest in blogs and wikis. And that's, again, how we kind of, we you know, we really talked to each other a lot through our blogging and met a lot of people that we're still friends with. Uh, one day, I think I was just venting about the lack of activity. And Darcy just was like, you want me to uh, install a movable type on your server while I'm here? Which was kind of the WordPress of its day. And I said, yeah, sure, that'd be cool. And he says, oh, while I'm at it, you want me to install the UseMod wiki software? And I'm like, yeah, that'd be cool. Thanks, man. And then whenever I would do like a wiki work or a workshop on learning objects, I'd be presenting off a wiki and I'd be telling people they could add things and stuff. And people would go, okay, this learning objects thing you're talking about sucks, but what's this software you're using? Like, what's this web page? And I was like, yeah, you can start your own. Go ahead. Uh, start a page now. You don't even need an account. I was like, what, what, what? And that literally was the infrastructure. And as far as I know, those were some of the earliest, like, quote, unquote, institutional blog and wiki projects. And those are still going. UBC blogs is still a thing. The UBC wiki is still a thing. And um, so I think John is right. I mean, I think, and I I think it did. I mean, that, that funding, it may not have been directed to the exact outcomes they hoped, but it did fund a wave of people getting together and projects and people getting into the field and you know, kind of a, probably a very inefficient apprenticeship program. Uh, it, it certainly was for me. I mean, uh, th- that actually subsidized half my salary at UBC for my first two years, and I was self-funded back then. So that allowed me to have a job. 
uh, in the field. And I could well not have been in the field uh, without that support. I love hearing the startings of your bromance with Darcy. <laughs> Those movable objects. Yes. Darcy, what's your version of the story? Oh, You're meet cute. Semantic density. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, so yeah, Brian, interesting point about the sort of the crossover with blogs and wikis. I mean, we actually, same thing. We were looking at our, our, at our repository and it's like, great, there's content, so what? And so we added the functionality of every object in the system had a wiki button and it would take take people to a wiki page so they, they could actually talk about and and add add value to the to the content um, and a discussion button so there'd be a thread of discussion based on all, and this was in the early 2000s where this stuff really wasn't that that common um, so that, that connection there um, absolutely and it, I, the irony is the blogs and the wiki are what actually took over which fantastic that's a lot lot more useful that, that it's like cow pathing right if you could over engineer a system or you could sort of build where people are walking the tools work better when you kind of let go a little bit. Uh, so that was kind of, yeah, that was like my lesson. We, we did so much work. We were trying to maintain control and push things in a certain direction. And it was realizing, oh, if you just let go a little bit and let people just do what they're going to do, they, they do interesting things. And it's then how do we build things to support that? And like Brian said, the blogging platforms are still going strong. We do, uh, we still do workshops on ePortfolios, which are based on blogging, which also kind of based on learning objects. How do you build your collection? So all these concepts are related, but they've evolved. They've changed. I love hearing the foundations of what everyone knows to now know, um, making learning objects social or the social content that was talked about in this chapter. Really, um, this was the time before, like you said, before Creative Commons, before we had interconnectivity on wikis and blogs. Um, And then it transferred into probably where you picked this up, John, in the OER a little bit. Is this where we head? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think a lot of, well... OER has got a lot of different roots uh, and I think it's kind of the OER and the open textbook and the other, you know, uh, open access generally are where kind of the, the library community comes, you know, kind of takes a, a swerve back into the conversation um, and, you know, has a lot of things that are probably kind of more sustained projects from that time. But for OER stuff... I, I think kind of crystallizing the, the like the, the frustrations of not being able to share and copyright and the problems with it was a huge kind of kick towards okay well what you know Creative Commons let's find a way to to share things. I think one of the other things you know a lot of OER projects started off with repositories started off with we you know we build the infrastructure we maybe we keep doing the standard stuff but maybe you know we we just go down to you know something Dublin core-ish. Um, but I think one of the things that was really interesting was as projects started to find other ways to share. So the visibility of blogs, the visibility of the Google ability and, you know, and Google as, as, as the interface, you know, did a lot better in many ways than a lot of the custom kind of search aggregators, um, which, you know, outside of specialist communities, no one ever knew anything about, but then the conversations got a lot more interesting. Um, around, you know, why do you share, how do you share, how do you teach, and how do you collaborate? Yeah, I like how um, Martin Loops uh, Wiley's comment is, yeah, the why are we doing this share? The why is behind all this, and what it makes it more interesting is uh, who else is doing it and where can we learn from them? And that's, that's what I found most interesting to build off this. 
Um, the social objects is how we, in, and it talks about a little around the interconnectedness of these ideas. And is this where we started to weave the loom of ed tech and bring people together? I don't know. I'm just fishing for an analogy here, but is that how some of it, you said in early meetings, whether it was EduSource or if Cancord had a contribution or if another group in um, Scotland had some efforts in the UK, um, I wonder if this is where we started making those links. I don't know. There, there was this sort of evolution of this stuff, right? So it started off with these institutional repositories because there was, it wasn't possible to do it any other way. And then blogs and wikis came along. It was possible to do that. And there was like this explosion. Everybody started their own blogs. They started Ning sites. Everybody was sharing stuff. And then in the last few years, that's kind of trailed down. And now everyone's just doing things on social media. They're, they're Twittering, they're Facebooking, they're TikToking. And those things are largely ephemeral. Like these things, they're shared and then they go away. And I think we need to get back a little bit more to the sort of the personal repository, for lack of a better word, but, you know, collecting things on your blog so that it exists you know, more than three months in, in the future, right? If you, if you share it on Twitter, it's gone. Yes, it, people will see it in the moment, but if they miss it, it's, it didn't happen. It is kind of interesting, Darcy, though, that little narrative you said actually, I think, kind of went with the rise and fall of a, not entire fall, but maybe decline. Uh, of a of a metadata standard, which was RSS. So, and a lot of the learning technologists, that was like we would go. That's a good example of a metadata standard because it's it's really easy to implement. It doesn't really put any weight on the user, but this RSS feed can be put into so many different places. And to me, like having an RSS feed on a repository, or if there was a collection, I'd look for the RSS button. And to me, that was almost like the button that said, "Okay, do these people get it or not?" Because this is, and I remember Stephen Downs back then, all of his talks, like he might as well have just had his middle finger up while he was talking. Like he was so belligerent at these events. But I remember one line he had that was really good. And he was talking about, he was talking to the IEEE. He was doing a keynote at an IEEE talk. And he actually said, a metadata standard should enable, not require. And RSS kind of fit that, that structure. So during that kind of period where Darcy was saying, where the blogging thing really had momentum, it's because RSS was everywhere and there were all these great aggregators. And I don't know. I mean, I think it's, RSS hasn't gone away. It's, it's the fundamental piece beneath podcasting, which is certainly there. And, but I mean, I think, you know, I don't know whether it was strictly because we let ourselves get too addicted to Google Reader and that particular infrastructure or what, but RSS just isn't as prominent as it was 10 years ago. Uh, at least not explicitly. Well, we know why Google wants to kill like a it. Human-facing metadata, right? So it was metadata, but it was human scale. I controlled my RSS feed. I controlled what I subscribed to. And that was pretty important. And then, yeah, I think you're right. Google Reader evaporated and this stuff, people didn't go find it. Around the time that kind of, you know, centralized, platformed, siloed social media like Facebook and Twitter, you know, really came into its own. I, I do think that's one other interesting connection, which, I mean, I... I don't want to go into this too much, but at the time with the, everyone having RSS readers and blogs and wikis, there was this real sense of what in the UK was called a, you know, a personal learning environment and this kind of structure that you created. And it's really interesting um, with my ed tech hat on now to see the conversations around next generation learning environments and, you know, and the future of this. And it's like, it's all going back to the idea of the same distributed control of individual tools. Um, but obviously, you know, it's trying to reinvent it. 
It's the same thing we've been doing for years. Welcome to the repeated lesson, Martin, that you want to drill into us in every chapter. No, I think you made a good call. Like, I think we let these other systems and platforms dictate how we customize, personalize, and tailor some of our information pieces because it's of their financial profit. I think bring it back to some of the brass tacks of how we would customize it and how we would um, preserve and archive our own work is pretty relevant, but it's not relevant to everyone, Darcy. So your call out of like, you're right, you could TikTok or Twitter, but that's not even going to be permanent or people may not even see it unless you have it somewhere else. So that's a great suggestion. So thinking about this chapter, there's lots in it. There's lots of ups and downs and uh, in talking about how learning objects kind of integrated into what we see in web 2.0 and personal learning environments, which other chapters will talk about. What's not discussed for either around this time period or what questions would you have for Martin or the community around um, what we know of learning objects to now? Well, I, I hinted at it. I mean, I, I think we could be a bit more explicit, I think, to how he, he talks about the transition into OER. But I think, again, I think there was a huge connection out of that culture to what got called kind of self-publishing or mass amortization or what got called back then social media, but which means that word means something so different now that I hesitate to call it that. But, you know, back then social media was actually about individual ownership of of stuff. So I don't know. I mean, I, I, I would probably just underline those connections a little bit, a bit more. It's uh, I, I think it wasn't just a, a precursor to, to, uh, to OER. I think it was also, uh, it was kind of culturally and technologically laid a lot of the groundwork for, for blogs and wikis and, and uh, kind of alternative ed tech, so to speak. Well, I'm maybe making the connection to Web 2.0 more explicit too. So where the repository solved the problem of, gee, it's hard to publish stuff to the internet, Web 2.0 kind of solved that problem. And I think that's where the, there's, a, there's a logical connection. I think what I'd add is I think that looking at what is still around today, I, I would, if I was back at the envelope guessing in terms of what's public, publicly accessible, 80, you know, at least 80% of it is stuff that got given an open license and got put out on one or more services that no individual had to maintain. I mean, yes, sometimes those, those commercial interests, but the learning objects that, that are still here are the learning ob objects that people gave up control over and shared. And I think that kind of definitely prefigures a lot of the open conversations. Yeah, we'll dig into some of those OER in future episodes as we talk of um, open textbooks is one and open educational resources itself is its own chapter. Um, but I do think, I, I like that you have each touched on copyright IP to socialness of it, whether it's social media or web 2.0 um, and the platform's uh, usability of where we share and I don't know if people would know how to use anything other than drag and drop these days, Darcy. So I'm not sure if we have to go back and re-educate folks. Uh, Brian, do you want to come back and become a learning object uh, captain on this or oh, what? Oh, gosh. Now you're giving me uh, something like PTSD by raising that <laughs> spectacle. No, it's perfect. Um, I want to thank you, gentlemen, for joining. Uh, do we have any questions we want to ask Martin about this chapter? Any call outs? It's an interesting, I mean, I think this has come up in just reviews of the book, you know, the, the idea of taking a, a concept and applying it to a year. There's this, you know, I think people who've criticized the book or poked the book kind of 
point out, it's, it's, it's just hard to slot things that way, but it also kind of does work pretty well. Uh, and it, it kind of becomes almost like, and I, I appreciate too, someone taking the attempt to write a book about ed tech that has such, like, it's the kind of framing you would typically see on like a coffee table book or something, or like a time life collection. And we don't see treatments like that of the field very often. So I almost like have that, that meta thought to Martin, like, you know, to, to what extent was he really setting out to write, you know, kind of like a popular history uh, as opposed to a scholarly work? And did that feel uncomfortable to him? And the fact that, you know, you're able to do things like this awesome podcast series, you know, uh, around it, you know, it lends itself to that in a way that I don't think typical scholarly books do. So I'm kind of fascinated by that. I don't know if it's a tension or if it's just a decision. Um, I guess a similar question, you know, I think that, you know, repositories and you know there, there was a lot of there was a lot of money invested and we've talked a little bit about um you know the impact on the sector in terms of people and conversations i guess the question for martin would be does he think that both in terms of the money and the, the time and effort and everything else spent in this that we're having better conversations about teaching and learning as a result darcy you love learning objects still is that oh big big fan <laughs> I mean, like Brian, they kind of got my start in the, in the industry. So it's like, yeah, I'm not, uh, I'm not going to hate on learning objects. Um, I would be super curious though, given what we've learned in, in the last two decades, how would we approach a similar type of project now? Like, would it just be as simple as spinning up a blog and dragging some stuff into it? Or how would, how would we do that kind of uh, institutional sharing and, and uh, cross institutional sharing? What would that look like now? That might be a relevant question as we think about the future of um, online learning, digital learning, and maybe the internet. So that's actually not a bad question to pose of what would it look like 20 years out from that experience? And what can we take from those lessons learned? Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for taking some time at your schedule to have a chat on my secret book club, not so secret podcast between the chapters. It's been great to hear from all of you. And I appreciate your time. Thank you, Lauren. Thanks for pulling this all together. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Between the Chapters with your host, Laura Pisquini. For more information or to subscribe to Between the Chapters and 25 Years of Ed Tech, visit 25years.opened.ca.